last Pentecost, I was uh, I went down to Holy Trinity for the interchurch Pentecost celebration that happens there every year. What stood out for me for the, from that service was uh, at the end of the sermon, there was a time of ministry and prayer, as you'd expect, and uh, it, lots of people came down the front, and there were teams of prayers who had been organized to come down and pray for them all. And uh, during that time, the preacher uh, continued to pray for those who were coming down the front and to pray for us all, uh, and kept saying over and over and over that uh, asking that heaven would be ripped open and the power of God would come down upon us. Now, I found that a really interesting prayer. Obviously, it's about the only thing that stayed with me from the service. And I think I found it interesting partly because, well, I wasn't really sure what he was praying for. As I said to my colleague who helped organize the service, I thought the point of Pentecost was that the power of God had come down, that the power of God was at work in the world, and that all we needed was eyes to see it. Apparently not. Ten days ago, we celebrated Ascension. When we remember Luke's recounting of Jesus gathering his disciples on the Mount of Olives and after a final pep talk, ascends into heaven or leaves this world. And what really stood out for me this year as I read that and what fascinates me is that after all that the disciples had been through, after being with Jesus for three years, hearing his teaching, seeing how he lived his life, seeing the people that he mixed with, after all uh, the, the provocative ride into Jerusalem, the provoking of the Jewish leaders, the Jewish elite, his trial, his crucifixion, and then his resurrection, after all of that, the thing they ask Jesus as they stand on the Mount of Olives is, is now when the kingdom of Israel will be restored. Or to put it another way, is it now that heaven will be ripped open and the power of God will come down and the Romans will be pushed out into the sea and the kingdom of Israel will be restored with you as king and with us in the winner's circle ruling and with all the power and strength and glory that goes with that? Is it now? At last we've waited so long. Is it now? I could hardly believe it as... I read that and I thought Jesus must have been so disappointed in them. I've just finished reading or listening to a book about the prophet Muhammad. Uh, a telling of his life using the earliest sources. And I actually think the disciples at this point would have been a lot happier with Muhammad than they would have been with Jesus. That he actually fitted what they were looking for. For most of his life, Muhammad was just, well, he was, a, he was seen as a, a different individual. But uh, there was, you know, nothing, no, well, there were, looking back, there were hints about what was to happen. Um, but it was only in his later days that uh, the Archangel Gabriel spoke to him and that he... Uh, 
began to develop the practices that eventually became Islam. And once uh, he went public with that, as more and more people gathered around him, uh, there came a time of persecution, particularly for those who were poorer or didn't have the protection of his family. Because of his rank in his family, most of the persecution uh, didn't come his way. And at the beginning of that time of persecution, the Archangel, Archangel Gabriel said to Muhammad that he was to persevere and put up with the persecution uh, to bear it with patience and humili humility. For those who could, they escaped and fled to Abyssinia, Ethiopia. Uh, others were forced to stay with their families. They were servants or slaves and uh, just put up with it. But eventually it became obvious that Muhammad's life himself uh, itself was under threat that the other families had worked out a way that they could dispatch with him in a way that would not cost their families too much. And at that point, uh, he fled. He left Mecca with his supporters uh, and went to Medina. And very shortly, Medina became a Muslim city. And at that point, the archangel spoke to Muhammad and he at that point, was allowed to defend himself. And so they were able to defend themselves initially, defend themselves against the attacks of Mecca, and as they became stronger, they were allowed, they were able to go on the offensive themselves and soon became able to attack caravans and other tribes around them. And eventually, it became politic to join, to enter into Islam, because Muhammad was a great friend and ally, but he was a terrible, terrible enemy. And so for the sake of peace and the sake of prosperity, many tribes in the end entered into Islam. And at that point, after only 10 short years, Muhammad was able to return to Mecca with, a over, with an overwhelming force and to reclaim Mecca as the center of Islam. Now that's exactly what the disciples were looking for. They were looking for someone who, once they were strong enough, could defend themselves. And as they grew stronger, were able to uh, go on the offensive and eventually push the Romans out and create a new kingdom of Israel. But Jesus refused to do it. And that brings us back, I think, to the reading we've just heard from the book of Acts. There are two amazing things that happen as a result of the events we heard about today. And the first is this, that up until the day of Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit, the disciples were still looking for the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. They were still looking for a traditional Messiah. They were looking for a Muhammad-type figure. After the day of Pentecost, it's never mentioned again. They let it go. They let go of their need to resist, to fight back. They let go of all they longed for, all they longed to be restored. They let go of their desire to be important and to be the leaders. And they let go of their need for heaven to be ripped open and for the power of God to be unleashed on the world and for the Romans to be destroyed and for the kingdom of Israel to be restored and for them to be placed as leaders in that kingdom. 
And instead, because the power of God, the power of the Spirit comes upon them, they simply get on with living as Jesus lived. They get on with seeing all as God's beloved, especially, especially those on the edge and beyond. And so we have from other historical records, the church in Rome, renowned not for its anti-Roman propaganda, not for its strident militarism, but for its work among the poor and the slaves. And that's what got it into trouble. Not because it was strident, not because it was militaristic, not because it preached a different world, but because of its work amongst the poor and the slaves. How different from the disciples who gathered on the Mount of Olives and asked Jesus, is this the time you will restore the kingdom of Israel? The answer was yes, but not in any way they foresaw. So as I think about that radical transformation of those disciples, I wonder today, what are we being invited to let go of? What hopes and aspirations are more about us than God? What gets in our way of seeing the Spirit of God at work? What are we being invited to let go of today? The second thing that struck me about the story is that the people heard the gospel in their own language. Now, for us who are used to hearing the gospel in our own language, that's not a particularly surprising thing. But it was an astounding thing for those people. Commonly, the language of a religion is the language of the founder. And so, for Judaism, the language is the language of the founder Moses, Hebrew. For Islam, the language is the language of the founder Muhammad, Arabic. And so, for those who would have seen Christianity as maybe a new religion, the expectation would have been that the language of that religion would have been the language of Jesus. So, either Hebrew or Aramaic. That language is the language that the worship is conducted in. So if you go to a synagogue, the worship is in Hebrew. If you go to a mosque, the language of the services is Arabic. A lot of the serious teaching is done in that language. And if you want to go anywhere in those religions, you have to know that language. You cannot go anywhere as a Jew unless you know Hebrew. You cannot go very far in Islam unless you know Arabic. And so that would have been the expectation of those early disciples until Pentecost. And on this day, an amazingly new thing happens. People hear the gospel of Christ in their own language. You don't have to learn a new language to know about God anymore. You simply can have to know your own language. God is speaking to you in your own language. And in that, I am sure, was the invitation not only to hear about God in your own language, but to worship God in your own language. Now, for us, that's not a particularly radical thing. But for people of that time who had come to Jerusalem, in which all the worship is in Hebrew, that would have been astounding. 
that would have been revolutionary. It was so revolutionary that the church in the West simply couldn't keep it up. And very soon, the language of worship and the language of teaching and the official language of the church became Latin. And it's only in our lifetime that that's changed. It's only in the 1960s that worship was allowed to be back in the language of the people. And even us, who might feel a little smug about this and say, oh well, we have language and we have worship in English. Actually, like the Eastern Orthodox Church, we keep archaizing. I don't even know if that's a real word. We keep using an older form of our language. So we keep, for example, going back to the original language of the Book of Common Prayer and kind of thinking that that sounds more holy. But on the day of Pentecost... The language that these people were speaking was the language, the common language of those who were gathered there. God was using and speaking through their common language and inviting people to worship in that language. That's remarkable enough in itself, but I think the second thing that is, the second part of this which is really remarkable is that soon these disciples will be leaving the comfort, relative comfort, of Jerusalem and Judah. Comfort because they know it. They know the language, they know the customs, they know the culture. And soon they will be scattered across the world. Thomas and others will be pushed across Persia and what we now call Afghanistan and Pakistan down into India. Others will go north into Armenia, Simon and Jude to Armenia and beyond. Others still will go south down into Ethiopia and others will go west to Rome and beyond where Peter and Paul eventually end up. There is a sense for those disciples as they left the security of Judah and as they travelled to those far off places, having heard the languages of those places, having spoken the languages of those places on the day of Pentecost, there is a sense that they would have known that the risen Christ was already there, already at work. And that they would never be alone in that work. That they were not going there to take the gospel. Jesus, the risen Jesus was already there living the gospel. They were simply going there to join in that work. Just as we are invited to look around us and to know that the risen Christ is already living the gospel amongst the people of these communities and simply invites us to join that work. So I think on Pentecost, God was reassuring them. God was inviting them to see the world very differently. God was inviting them to see that God is at work in every place and not just this place, Jerusalem, with these people. That God is not a God of safety and the status quo, but that God is a God who does new and radical things. That God is changing the world and was inviting those disciples to join in that work of changing the world. And today invites us to join in that work of changing the world. So I wonder, in light of all of that, what are we being invited to let go of this Pentecost? What is getting in our way? What hopes or expectations do we need to quit if we are to truly be followers of Christ? And once we have let those go, 
Where do we see the Spirit of God at work in those around us? And I have a PowerPoint that I would like you to watch. And as you watch and prayerfully reflect on that PowerPoint, I'd like you to reflect on those two questions. What is it we are being invited to let go of this Pentecost? And once we've let those go, where are we being invited by the Spirit of God to join in the work of the risen Christ?